0: Let me read it. Romans 3, starting in verse 9. Paul says, What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery, And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Let us pray. God, we come before you, and we do acknowledge that you are our final judge. There is no human being in this world that will not be held accountable to you. You are creator, you are redeemer, but you are the judge, and we worship you as such, and we glory in your judgment and your justice. But we also pray that you might flood our hearts with something that the law can never give to us, which is your grace and redemption. And I pray that this sermon will glorify that, both the law and the gospel of Jesus, and that you would help it to be understandable and applicable from those who are just learning the Bible, that you will help them to understand and enlighten their minds. And for those who have been learning the Bible for many years that this will come fresh into their hearts and create new humility that will create new phases of transformation. May this sermon do all those things and all that you propose, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is like a spiritual x-ray of all human beings. It's like Paul is like being a doctor and he's brought us into the room and he says, okay, I have... I have the the outcome of what we have found on the inside of your spiritual life. You can see that it's a spiritual x-ray of our our head in in verse 10 and 11 where he says no one understands. It's a spiritual x-ray of our throat and our mouth in verses 13 and 14. It's a spiritual x-ray of our feet. In verses 15 through 17, and finally in verse 18, it is an x-ray of our eyes. Now, when you sit down with the doctor, and maybe you might even be feeling good, and then he puts up an x-ray and shows you those dark splotches of sickness, you might be surprised. And there's no doubt that in our culture, where we're constantly told and fed a regular diet of, I'm okay, you're okay, we're all doing all right. This passage is very surprising, isn't it? Uh, it, it gives us a, a, a really a different story. And I, ha- I, have to, I have to admit to you that this past week I was, I was in a hotel. And we went to Indianapolis, Sherry and I, to a, a conference about biblical counseling. You can pray for me that I'll get better at that. And, and I learned a lot of things. But the hotel taught me a lot of things, too. I don't know about you, but you know what I don't like? I don't like hotel bathrooms. You want to know why? Because there's a big mirror... And there's really bright lights that are different than at home. Do you know what I'm saying? And you'll kind of get out of the show. You're like, whoa! Oh, my gosh. And you start covering yourself up. You know what I mean? And you start going, you know, we live in the 21st century. You would think that they could create some some mirrors in those hotels that would make you look 10 pounds lighter and 10 years younger. Can I get an amen? I mean, that would be really helpful. But the truth is, is that the hotel mirror tells you the truth. And I got dressed real quick and... I went out into the room where Sherry Baby was, and I said, Sherry Baby, I got to renew my membership to the gym because I need some help, you know? And this is kind of like that. This is kind of like that. It's a light, it's a foreign understanding of our true nature. And you know what? I'm like you. I wish that the whole world could get this x ray, don't you? When you look at terrorism and racism, when you look at all the things that are going on in the world today, when you look at the political duplicity, how sad is our political situation today? Isn't it sad? And and you you wish that the whole world, just for five minutes, would just listen and get the diagnosis of the sickness that is within so that finally the world might seek the redemption that God has in the gospel of Jesus Christ. That a new fear would come over people, over God. And our true standing before God. I want that, don't you? I want that for my girls. I want that for my grandkids. I want a new world. And the only way we could ever get a new world is if the world would finally see this x-ray for what it is. We are sick. We are terribly sick. But you know what? We can't talk to the world today. We can only talk to each other. And our responsibility is to stand before this x-ray ourselves and to get the diagnosis because the truth of the matter is, is that I'm sick and you're sick. And we have to come in humility and say, God, I'm weak and I'm sick and I've got stuff in me that's not right and I need help. I need help. And the moment we come to that place is the moment that great things begin to happen and so the Apostle Paul brings us to this x-ray, and he begins to show us our head and our our mouth and our feet and our eyes, and his purpose in doing so is so that we might understand our true corruption and understand our true need of the redemptive and the redemption and power of Jesus Christ. Now, before we go into the details of this spiritual x-ray, I want to look at verse 9. Look at Romans 3 and verse 9. I want to give you a key phrase so that we begin to outline maybe what maybe for some of you haven't heard in a while. Or maybe for some of you, you've never heard taught in a, in a church before. And I'm going to teach you this morning. It's very difficult truth, but I pray that your hearts will be open to it. And the key phrase is verse 9 when he says that all people, both Jews and Greeks, now watch this, are under sin. That phrase, under sin, is such a critical, theological, philosophical view of anthropology. Paul is saying that all human beings, without exception, are under sin. Now that word under doesn't mean we're beneath sin. Under means we're under the influence of sin. That we are trapped in the realm of and in the power of sin. Not only does the word under-emphasize this, but... The word sin is used in the singular as Paul often does. So you'll you'll rarely see Paul say you're under sins like talking about the symptoms or the things that we do that are wrong. He uses the singular word sin to describe the realm of sin that creates the manifestations and the symptoms of sins plural. know, my pastor, he he did a great job uh, teaching this to me when I was a kid in church. He always talked about there's capital S sin and there's lowercase sins. And the real problem is the capital S sin, the power of sin that corrupts us, that we're stuck in. Does that make sense? You know, if we could just be delivered from the power of capital S sin, then we would begin to overcome our lowercase sins. That we commit against each other and against God. It's a realm. Theologians, they use the word that's very controversial, this phrase. But in the, during the Reformation, they came up with a phrase to describe this realm and power of sin that all human beings are under. And the phrase is called total depravity. That human beings are under and are totally depraved. Now... They didn't mean by that that we are utterly depraved. In other words, they didn't say that everything about us is bad. In fact, there's many good things about human beings. We're made in the image of God. We got talents. Some of you are really tall and handsome, right? Others of us were athletic and quick. Amen. You know what I'm saying? Total depravity doesn't mean everything about us is bad. In fact, the Bible would state that even the worst of criminals in history had moments of goodness. I mean... You know, Adolf Hitler probably loved his mama at least one day, right? I mean, he wasn't utterly depraved, right? And some behaved better than others. But what total depravity pointed to is at the core of our being, in our heart, or as the Bible calls it, our inner man is in rebellion against the glory of God. That's the realm of sin. R.C. Sproul, in a book titled Unknown Grace, uh, he helped, too. He said, you know, maybe we, should, maybe we should exchange this phrase, total depravity, for radical corruption. Because the word radical literally comes from a Latin word that means core. At the core, not everything about us, but at the most important part where we have communion with God, there's corruption that leads to all of the various small corruptions of our life. This captures perfectly what Paul teaches in Romans. Romans. That we are all under sin, that we are totally depraved, that we are radically corrupt. And what we need is a power to come from outside of us to deliver us from the power of sin so that we can begin to overcome all of the manifestations of sin. Does that make sense? Now, you might not be convinced. I understand that. This is so foreign, this is so uncommon, this teaching. And so let us patiently walk through this passage as Paul then throws up. It's kind of like the doctor says, okay, you, you got cancer. And you're like, well, I don't feel like I got cancer. And then the x-ray, light, turn. And he shows you, okay, let me prove to you that you got cancer so you'll seek the medicine you need. And so the spiritual x-ray, it, it outlines the radical corruption. So what's the x-ray about? Number one, the x-ray is about our head. Our head's all messed up, right? And that's what he talks about. Let's look at the spiritual x-ray of our head, which clearly captures for us a picture of our total depravity or radical corruption. He says in verses 10 through 12, As it is written... None is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You can see the operative phrase in the, in the phrase in verse 11, no one understands. From verses 10 through 18, Paul is doing nothing but quoting various psalms and passages from the Old Testament. He's stringing them together. In fact, he strings together in these verses... Six Old Testament passages to make his point from the source and the authority of Scripture. Here in verses 10 through 12, he quotes various phrases from Psalm 14, verses 1 through 3. What we note in these verses, verses 10 through 12, is we note the universal nature of radical corruption in the head. He says, it's almost funny. You can underline it, you can underline it. none. Not one, no one, no one, all, they have become worthless. No one, not even one. I mean, do you get the point? I mean, if, if you're looking down the street, you're like, yeah, but I bet you Bob isn't totally corrupt. You know, like, no, Bob is there, right? Or, you know, I bet you, I bet you Sally Sue, I bet you she doesn't fall under this. No, Paul, Paul leaves nobody out. Like, we're all under the realm and under the influence of this horrible thing called sin it explains everything about our world, all of the broken relationships, because everyone, you too, me too, Pastor Josh, I know you guys think I'm holy and righteous and perfect. How can you not with this beautiful black shirt up here? But I too am under the realm of sin. And Paul says that no one is righteous, and the reason why is because our head No one understands our mind. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, Paul says this, again clarifying our radical corruption in our mind. He says, They are darkened. There's the x ray, that dark splotch. Where's that dark splotch on the x ray picture? It's in our mind, it's in our understanding. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. Not only do we not understand God, not only do we not have a mind for the glory of God, we don't want a mind for God. We don't want to think about God. We don't want to worship God. We don't want to understand God because we have a hardened heart which Fills our mind. Not only does this understanding not seek, not understand God, but it leads to not seeking for God. No one seeks for God. You're like, well, now wait a minute. Why would the Bible say that no one seeks for God? All these religions, all these spiritualities, all these temples and synagogues and mosques and churches and stained glass windows, surely these are monuments of human beings seeking after God you have to understand with all the icons and all of the images and all of the the Facebook messages and poetry about God, don't you see that all religion is human opinion to escape God, to substitute God with the idolatry of religion and man-made self-congratulatory works that don't honor God but only lift and propped up the human spirit against God and say, I will make a great tower in your name like they did in Genesis when they built the Tower of Babel. That Tower of Babel that they built in Genesis, that was not a tower of secular thought. That was a religious monument. We will make a name great for ourselves, for our race, for our geography, for our nation, for our ethnic qualities. And these monuments from synagogues to churches only glorify man. We don't seek after God. We seek glory for our own name. We look to our own works and religion to say, I'm good enough. God should accept me. Look at this church I've built. Look at these monuments and these opinions I've come up with. And God looks at that and says, That's not seeking me. That's running from me. That's replacing me. That is substituting me for demonic religion. All those atheists out there who complain that religion has been the source of so much evil, they're right. You're right of course the atheist has nowhere to hide either because the atheist builds up his own religion the atheist and his zeal for no God there is no God and they write books and they write articles and they have intellectual exercises in their universities and they prop themselves up with their false religion because they too don't seek after God with their mind and God always promised us He always promised in Jeremiah chapter 29 verse 13, if man would seek me with all of his heart he would find me. All we would have to do is turn around with a heart that's willing to worship God but we don't do it. Paul says at the end of the day, no one seeks after God. Greeks, Gentiles, it doesn't matter. Hmm. This mind that doesn't seek God then turns aside, I love that phrase in verse 12, all of turned aside the greek word that's being used there to quote this great psalm it means to lean in the wrong direction perhaps even to prop a ladder it's kind of like you got a ladder to work your way up right and 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 you you got two walls to choose from where am i going to prop my ladder up and not only do we prop our ladder up wrong we prop it up against the wrong wall And we start climbing it, thinking we're getting closer to God, when in fact, not only are we not getting closer to God, we're on the wrong wall. We've turned aside. It goes on to say, man, how vivid this x-ray is, isn't it? Together they have become worthless. I I know like many of you, we all have a hard week, and these are tough truths to study, aren't they? But this word is so vivid that we need to communicate it so we'll seek Jesus more emphatically. This word worthless was used to describe spoiled milk. Have you guys ever drank spoiled milk? It is the net. When I was a little kid, I went, the, I went into the fridge, I opened it up, and I grabbed that big gallon of milk, and I did the whole let's drink straight out of the carton. You know what I mean? And I took a big old swig, and it was as spoiled as could be. And I gagged, and from that day forward, I mean, literally, it is a rule in my household don't drink that milk until you check the expiration date. Amen. Our expiration date is up. Long ago. You know when the expiration date of our spoiling happened? It happened with Adam and Eve when they took that apple. And that moment, the expiration date was up and we became worthless. Spoiled. In Greek literature, the word worthless was used to describe the laughter of a fool, the senseless laughter of fools. Have you ever, have you ever seen the senseless laughter of fools in the movies or in culture, you know, where there's, ah, and they're laughing all the time about nothing at all? I know I, got, I went to on vacation with my... Uh, Nephew and niece and my brother and, and my daughters, and they, we all pulled out our phone and started pulling up YouTube videos and just laughing senselessly at the, at the stupidity of people running into things. And I, I stopped and went, guys, we just spent two hours just uselessly laughing at nothing. And isn't that our world? You know, Proverb says, underneath the laughter, the heart aches. I know, it's tough, isn't it? We've aside. We've become worthless. No one does good. You're like, come on now. So There's some people that do good things. I mean, it's, and it's true. You know, the Bible makes a distinction between civil obedience and righteous obedience to God. And praise God for Scripture that gives us the law, and it tells us how a society should rightly operate. And many of us, we, we practice civil obedience, which is a good thing. Can I get an Amen. It's good to do good things, and Paul is certainly not saying that nobody does anything good. But in the context of Romans chapter 1, verses 18, all the way through Romans chapter 3 and verse 8, the context is in in, in the glory, uh, in the presence of God, doing good works for the glory and honor of God. Like we do good out of love for God is what we're called to do. And no one does good by that standard or that measure. None of us do good. Good works, most of our good works are tainted by self-interest. Isn't that humbling? And we need to be humbled. We all have sinned against the glory of God. You see, we've turned aside. We've become worthless in light of the righteousness of God. and, And we're under the wrath of God. We are all deserving of His right and good Justice at the final day of reckoning when we will face him as our judge. I say this with sobriety of thought and heavy heart for myself and for all of us, you know, there's all this conversation today about millennials, you know, how bad the millennials are. And oh, these, so there's like two groups of people talking about the millennials. Have you guys heard about these conversations? Everybody's talking about millennials, all the time, articles and podcasts and leadership and how can businesses do and kind of attract millennials. And, and then everybody's kind of criticized, like, you know, they're so lazy and they don't do anything and they're always complaining and they're always protesting and they're always hitting the streets. And what's wrong with this generation? They're, they're so, they're so. Messed up. They're just all these millennials. What's wrong with them? And what we learn here in this universal call of human sin is that every generation is sinful. Amen? How dare us older ones in our generation look down on another generation when we are just as sinful? It was Socrates who said in the 4th century B.C., before Christ, here's what Socrates said. He said, the children now love luxury. They have bad manners, contempt for authority. They show disrespect for elders and love chatter in the place of exercise. Children are now tyrants, not the servants of their households. They no longer rise when elders enter the room, and they still don't, man. (laughs) They contradict their parents, chatter before company, gobble up dainties at the table. They crossed their legs. My goodness. And they tyrannized their teachers. That's that's B.C. That's before Jesus even came into the world. We say, what's wrong with the world? What's always been wrong with the world? No one seeks after God. All humanity is under this sin. I remember my brother, he was... He's a good, he's, he, he was a good vocalist. He still kind of is, but he was really good when he was young. Sean, if you're listening, he was in a musical at one point in time. I had to go watch this musical. The little brother had to go to the musical that his brother's in, and the musical was Bye Bye Birdie. Have you guys ever gone? Have you endured this thing? But out of that musical, Bye Bye Birdie, the song titled Kids, Here's How It Goes, Kids, I don't know what's wrong with these kids today. Kids who understand anything they say. Kids, they are disobedient, disrespectful oafs, noisy, crazy, sloppy, lazy loafers, and why we're on the subject. Kids, you can talk and talk till your face is blue. Kids, but they still do just what they want to do. Why can't they be like we? perfect in every way what's the matter with kids today you see we all look down and we say what's wrong with them and God looks at us and says what's wrong with you our mind our head we're all falling short of the glory of God and you know the good news is this is that Jesus came into the world to help us with our mind He came to redeem and to heal the sickness and the poison that's going on. In fact, thankfully, in John 15, 15, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from the father, watch this. I have made known to you. Jesus is saying, I want to make known to you the glory of the Father. I came into this world not to push you down and to say there's no hope for you. I came to give you hope. And we're encouraged as believers. And if you're not a believer, you're encouraged to believe in Jesus. Let him renew your mind. Let him heal this disease. Let him be the one that takes away that dark splotch on the spiritual x ray of your head. And Jesus then says, that we can renew our mind. In fact, Paul's going to go on to say in Romans chapter 12, verse, verse 2. Listen to this. What a great application. Paul says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and imperfect. You see, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, are you? Why? Because it's the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes. Power to do what? Power to have a renewed mind. Power to give the poison and the, and the captivity of our minds to this world and to our sinfulness and exchange it for the mind of Christ so that we can be renewed and changed and we can begin to come out of this fog that has affected and afflicted every generation. That's what the x-ray tells us to do, to go to the doctor of our mind who is Jesus Christ. But Paul moves from the x-ray of the mind... To the x-ray of our mouth. And how gross is that? I don't even like looking in my mouth in a mirror, much less to see an x-ray of this. But here they are. And of course, he moves from the universal sickness to the very specifics by moving to the mouth. You can see that in verses 13 and 14. How graphic is... Oh, man, these verses are so graphic. Paul says their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. I point out the progression of the flow of this string of verses Paul is putting together. Very intentionally, I think. He moves from the throat to the tongue to the lip to the mouth. So you can see it's kind of coming up from inside, and it slowly kind of comes out. There, there we are, in total depravity, radical corruption at the core. It begins to have its work. It works up from the throat into the tongue, from the lips, all the way out to the mouth. It's pretty graphic stuff. He literally is marshaling several verses: Psalm five and nine, Psalm. 140 in verse 3. Psalm 10 and verse 7. I would break up this progression of throat, tongue, lips, and mouth to kind of two categories. Number one, he talks about throat plus tongue equals the stench of deception. If you want to see the symptoms of our radical corruption, it's found in this deception. He literally says that our throat is an open grave. Now, there's two ways to take this, right? I mean, if you've got an open grave, right? The reason why we don't keep our graves open is to cover up, out of respect, to cover up the grotesque kind of decay of a, of a dead body, right? That's the purpose of covering up a grave. And also, of course, to cover up the stench that comes from an open grave. And Paul is saying that our mouths don't cover up stench, Don't conceal the grotesque nature, but in fact is an open grave. Now, some scholars take it as like our mouths are deceiving people to kill people. Like our mouths are literally killing people to put them into an open grave. We are deceiving for the purpose of destroying and and dividing people. Isn't that a great description of our world today? The open grave of human words. I do believe there's one politician who's in trouble right now because of words that he said. What an open grave. Here he is, he's talking about our deception and the stench of our deception. And you know what? We've all used words to deceive, haven't we? Sometimes it's not quite as obvious, but we know how to manipulate, we know how to push buttons, we know how to even passively, aggressively use words. This is all the result of our total depravity, our radical corruption. Of course, if the deception is not enough, Paul talks about lips Here's a second category I put our mouth in under this x-ray. Lips plus mouth equals the cursing of bitterness. If we can't deceive, well, then we'll just be bitter. If we can't control what we want to control, we'll just get bitter about it. And we'll let everybody know that we're bitter. And the bitterness just flows out like, like the venom of a snake, a poisonous snake, it just, it just comes out, and our, our homes are filled with bitterness, and our, our, our marketplace is filled with bitterness, and our news is filled with bitterness, and, and we feed on bitterness. How graphic is this idea, where he talks about the venom of asp. Manaspo is an Egyptian cobra filled with poison. And when he says that, that the venom of asp is under their lips, everybody say, "under." That actually is a perfect description of a poisonous stake, snake and its anatomy. In fact, listen to this quote. Listen to this quote about how poison works from a deadly snake. One writer says it like this. The fangs of such a deadly snake ordinarily lie folded back in the upper jaw. But when the snake throws its head to strike, these hollow fangs drop down when the snake bites, the fangs press a sack of deadly poison hidden under the lips, injecting venom into the victim. Isn't that graphic? And Paul wants us to understand the graphic nature of this. I heard a story. uh, I don't know if this is true, but because I'm a preacher and I need illustrations, I'm going to tell you it, all right? It communicates it perfectly. But I heard a story. It's hard to believe. But a guy literally found a, a, a pet like baby rattlesnake and thought, oh, it's a little cute little, little, little rattlesnake. And like said, I'm going to take it home and make it my pet. I'm going to domesticate this little rattlesnake. And so took it home. And of course, after a week or so of playing with this rattlesnake, it disappears one day. And for several months, he can't find it anywhere, thinking that maybe it slithered away from the home or went away. And one day when he was looking for his phone or a remote control or something, insert whatever you want, he was reaching behind a couch, and suddenly he felt a bite, a sting, and he pulled it out. And there, hanging from his hand, was the fangs of a rattlesnake. The point of the story is that you can't change the nature of a snake, can you? You can take it home and put perfume on it and, and put it in a nice little jar. What did Billy Graham say? Billy Graham said, you can't change the nature of a pig. You can put it in a room and dress it up and put perfume on it. But at the end of the day, it's still going to get out of the room. And it desires to get into the mud and into the slop because the nature of a pig is a pig. The nature of a snake is a snake. And the nature of human beings, unfortunately, proven in our life and in our world, the nature of us is deception and bitterness. Susception and bitterness. This is what the x-ray, this is what the doctor is showing us. Jesus talked about this powerfully. His worldview of anthropology, his own worldview of human nature is clearly communicated in many places. Probably most pointedly is in Matthew chapter 12 and verse 34, and Scott, I think I got that slide wrong, so just, I'll just have to read it. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 34, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you brood of vipers. I use that verse sometimes with my children when they're in trouble, you know what I'm saying? You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Paul is saying that the heart contrives and the mouth speaks what the heart contrives. Or as I heard at the conference I had this week, the body is the equipment to execute the ideas of the heart. And Jesus is saying the reason why we're bitter, the reason why we're deceptive with our words is because our heart is sick. Jesus said, praise God, hallelujah. Everybody just say amen before I'm even about to say what I'm about to say. Say amen. amen. Jesus came to change our heart. And as he changes our heart, our mouth changes. The poison leaves. We're healed in Jesus' name. And that's why Paul says in Romans, in Romans let me find it. Romans chapter 10 verses 8 and 9, he says, Paul says, What does it say? The word is near you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if we confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Saved from what? From venom. Saved from a mouth that's deceptive. Saved from bitterness. And Christian, if you've already confessed Jesus, and if you believe in your heart that he's raised from the dead, then why are you bitter? What are you doing? You're acting like you still got that poison sack in your mouth, and Jesus has taken it away, so stop acting like you got it, because there's no reason to be bitter. There's only good reason to praise God, to serve, to offer light in the presence of darkness, to offer goodness in the presence of badness, to be different than everybody else, not to be the same. Jesus saves us, and we confess him, and we, and we believe in him, and he's our Lord, and he's our Savior because he heals us. He heals us. Has he healed you? Has he healed you? Has he healed you, and is he healing you? But unfortunately, the world is under this powerful poison. Poison. And it leads to the next x-ray result, which is the feet. And because of this poison in our mouth and this head condition, the next thing it points to is our feet. Look at it, verses 15 through 17. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their past are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. Note this idea of feet, past, and way. Our feet and our past and our way are not the past and the way of peace. And what is peace? Peace is harmonious relationships. Hmm. Peace is when human relationships work in interest and warmth and love and justice. That's peace. And peace is not just simply like there's no hostility in the relationship. Like, oh, we've been married for 65 years. We don't like each other very much. But we've stayed married. You know what I mean? Like, that's not peace. Like, biblical peace is like, I love you. I want to be at the table with you, man. I want to break bread with you. I want to be with you and serve you. I want to redo in your life what Jesus has done in my life. I love you. That is peace. And so when it x-rays our feet spiritually and it's saying there's a problem, it's emphasizing broken relationships. And not only broken relationships in terms of human relationships, but a running in the opposite direction of the true solutions that could bring harmony to relationships. An almost decision to purposely be miserable in our relationships. First thing our feet runs to, there's two things I put down. We run as human beings to violence, and we live in a very violent time, don't we? Our feet not only break relationships, we destroy human lives. One writer said this about the violence of human beings. He said, the most savage animals do not destroy so many of their species to appease their hunger As man destroys of his fellows to satiate his ambition, his revenge, and his greed. In other words, he says, you know, you go out into the animal kingdom, and animals kill each other. They kill each other. I've, I've watched those National Geographic things with my daughters. It's the one thing I love to watch with my girls. Can I get an amen? Like, look at that leopard go, you know, and he's just boom, 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 boom. You know, and he's going after the antelope. You know what I mean? And he grabs the antelope, and he tackles it, and I'm like, yes, leopards. You know what I mean? But here's the thing animals kill other animals to eat food. Human beings kill other human beings for greed and selfishness and pride. How many unborn babies are born, are killed every day? How many wars and murders? Rooted in the poison of bitterness, flow. And how many of us celebrate violence? We we make it popular culture and call it cool. We are violent, our feet are running in the direction of death. That's the truth. We didn't come to church to hear lies, did we? We came to church to hear the truth. You know you're at church when you're hearing the truth. And that's the truth. We're running to violence, man. And if we're not running to violence, we're running away from reconciliation. We're running away from helping each other out and forgiving one another. Marriages are torn apart by feet that refuse to get into that room and say what is on their mind. Churches are ripped apart because believers won't follow Jesus and get in the room and say, you've offended me, and I'm hurt, and I want to be reconciled. I want to restore this relationship. No, 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 no. We passively, aggressively don't talk about it in the name of, I like to avoid conflict. I just, I just don't, I don't like conflict at all. And you know what the real issue is? You are running. You are running. Your feet are running away from peace. And God is calling us to reconcile, to practice peace. To make it happen, to humble ourselves and not to be fed on our pride. Our feet. God help my feet. I remember when I was dating Sherry, and our goal in, and I'm getting hot up here, are y'all hot? I don't know if it's the preaching or a lack of AC. anyways, I met Sherry, and our goal was to keep our clothes on until we got to the altar. Can I get an amen? That was a good thing for me because I was pretty convinced I had ugly feet. And I was like, you are not going to see my feet before we get married because you won't marry me if you see my feet. And one day we're watching a movie and we had somebody with us. So it was all safe. She said, you know, you, you need to show me your feet. And I don't know if that's because she was like, I probably should look at this, you know. Or she was trying to encourage me. Knowing Sherry was probably trying to encourage me. I took off my socks. She said, you have beautiful feet those feet. Those are going to be my feet when we get married. But the human spiritual feet, when you really reveal them, not beautiful. They don't bring the good news of the gospel. They bring avoidance. You know, there's a great passage about the gospel of Jesus Christ and how powerful it is. And That passage about Jesus and how he helps our feet comes from The prophet Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, where we know, and it's never too early for Christmas. Can I get an amen? It says, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. You know, when I'm struggling, sometimes I struggle with this too. Definitely. You know what I do? I go to the Prince of Peace. And you know what he shows me? He shows me that God didn't run away from me when I had fallen. When I had offended God's holy nature, God didn't run away from me, God ran to me in Jesus. And he established peace by dying for me on the cross and defeating death. And he reconciled me to God. And now when I look into his face, he looks at me and he says, Now that you have the Prince of Peace, represent the Prince of Peace by practicing peace in your relationships. The power of the gospel. It saves us. And it saves our relationships. It saves our marriages. It saves our churches. It saves our marketplace. And it makes us distinctively different in a culture that refuses to be reconciled one to another. Well, as I'm running out of time, let me finish it up. And I don't have in your outline a slot for this because I intentionally wanted this to be different. The last thing that the x-ray shows is our eyes. Look at verse 18. He quotes Psalm 36:1 here and he says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. By quoting this at the end of this string of pearls from the Old Testament, Paul is ultimately showing the root motivation of our problem. In fact, this is an inclusio with verse 10. When he says in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. Here in verse 18, he's summing it up with a a top statement and a bottom statement that kind of wraps around these problems that we have. And he says, as Paul always says over and over again, that the root problem is a lack of fear of God. That our problem in all of our relationships and all of our poison is rooted in our separation from God. Similar to his outline of Gentile pagan idolatry where he says ungodliness leads to unrighteousness. And when hypocritical morality of religion leads to pride uh, that is what he's ultimately saying he's saying that the root of all of our problems is that we don't fear God and imagine if the world and if you and I just feared God everybody say fear you know where there's no fear of God there's no peace in the world where there's no fear of God in a home there's no peace in that home Where there's no fear of God in the church, there's no peace in the church. You see that? And fear means exactly what it means. It means fear. There's kind of a positive aspect and a negative aspect of fear of God. The positive aspect is its reverential awe of the awesome power and might and holiness of God. It's just looking at God and going, how awesome is God? I, I tremble at the awesomeness of God. Proverbs says that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord, right? Right. But fear also has the negative idea of terror and dread. And this word captures that as well. It's the terror and the dread of a holy God. And nobody dreads or is terrorized by the very holiness of God. Which, by the way, it is absolutely artificial to make a dichotomy like, well, it only means the the reverential fear and seeing God as awesome. But doesn't mean anything about terror or dread. (laughs) No, it means terror and dread. Can I get an amen? God is awesome. And he's the judge. I'm going to be going to see my dad today. I'm driving down to Oklahoma. Y'all can pray for me. It's going to be about, you know, I'm not going to be taking my girls, so I'm going to do it in about nine hours. But anyways, I can tell you, with my dad, I had a respect for him. I had admiration for him. There was much to, to admire in this man. And I feared him in that way. But I also had a dread of him. Can I get an amen? And there was a good dread there. And sometimes that dread of my dad being the authority figure in my life actually slowed down my corruption. It didn't take it away, unfortunately. But it slowed it down because I knew... That dad was not a stranger to be terrorized by. He was my father to dread who is a righteous and good father who will rightly discipline me if I step outside of the bounds that he has established. And let me tell you something. God has established the boundaries. God has established the the truth of what life is. And when we don't dread him, when we don't fear him or respect him, we easily step outside those bounds and just do whatever we want to do, just going to live our life just however we want to do. And there's no fear of God. Paul says this radical corruption that leads to a head that has a problem and a mouth that has a problem and to a feet that are swift not to reconcile but establish bitterness and deception and all the rest of it. It's all rooted in the fact that we don't fear God. We don't fear God. I thought about this in my own life. I was very convicted by verse 18 in particular this week. I think I've had more pity parties than prayer meetings this week. Have you? I haven't been praying. I think about all the things I don't like. I think about all the circumstances that don't go my way. And I just kick that dirt and I just have me a big old pity party. Poor me. Woe is me. I deserve so much more. And those pity parties show I have no fear of God. I don't respect Him. And if I did, if I did, I would have prayer meetings. I'd get before God. It's not about me; it's about you. I'd get before God and have a conversation. I'd get before my Lord and my Savior, and I would pray to Him. God, help me to stop having pity parties and to start having prayer meetings, because I fear Him. He's good to fear. But make a note. Where there is no fear of God, there is no peace in the world. There's only death and destruction. Let me give you two points of application as I close this out. The first point of application is just an awareness of the verdict that Paul is giving. Look at verses 19 and 20. He says here, now we know, leaving his string of pearls of Bible verses. He leaves it and now he makes commentary. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. That's pretty obvious at this point. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Paul is stating, just very simply, Paul is stating that the law of God revealed in the law of Moses is the x-ray machine it's the light by which we measure all of these things and that x-ray machine of the law of God ten commandments take your pick of however you want to describe it it shows and reveals our sickness it makes sin knowledgeable to us it's the light in the hotel bathroom it's it's standing out and go oh I didn't know it was that bad you know it's it it is the revelation of sin comes from the law of Moses and if We're Gentiles, and we didn't grow up with the Bible. The law of the conscience, Romans chapter 2, it reveals to us our sickness. And the verdict, according to this x-ray, is we are to be condemned. We cannot satisfy the justice of God with this total depravity. That's what he's saying. The verdict is guilty. If your life is only under the law and you face God under the law, you will be condemned. That's the verdict. But the second point of application is the victory. And our victory comes apart from the law. Let me cheat and just jump into next week's text real quick. Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Hallelujah. Can I get an amen? Woo! Get that x-ray machine out of here. I get it, doctor. I'm sick. There's blotches. Okay. What's the medicine? What's the procedure? What's the treatment? I get that the x-ray machine can't fix me. It can only tell me I'm sick. But in verse 21, we get the medicine. The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all. Everybody say all. All who believe, there is no distinction. If you believe in Jesus, the healing will begin. If you believe in Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, you will begin to slowly, and it is a slow process and a lifelong process, the healing will begin. And you will begin to be reconciled to God and reconciled to this world. You will see the world in a whole new light as you believe in Jesus. Confess with your mouth. Believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord, and you will be saved. Religion can't do this. You can't be saved by religious works. You can't be saved by self-help books and Barnes and Noble. You can't be saved by all the TV preachers that you listen to. You can't be saved by politics. Hallelujah, amen. You already knew that. You can't be saved by lower taxes or you can't even be saved by the flag. You can only be saved by faith. In Jesus Christ. I wrote this in my notes. Jesus is our doctor. Amen. Jesus is our counselor. Jesus is our mighty God to save. Jesus is our prince of peace. Let us pray.